Welcome to the OA Lighted Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Amy. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi. I'm really nervous to share at this meeting. Um, thank you, Atusa, for asking me to speak and for um, for trusting that I have enough recovery to be here when I don't often trust that I have that. It really helped me to have that conversation with you and to, to feel like I do have something to share and some experience, strength, and hope. Because I think because I don't do it perfectly, I don't deserve I don't deserve to tell my story and I don't deserve to call myself abstinent and I don't deserve a lot of things because I'm not in a the body I think I should be in and because my food doesn't always look like it should and because my head doesn't talk to me or think the way I think it should and my feelings aren't what I think they should be and it goes on and on and on. So I'm really grateful to be here tonight. And just to let you know kind of time-wise where I am, I am in... Um, been in program over three years. I have about two and a half years of abstinence. I got abstinent right away when I came in. And for me, abstinence at first looked like no sugar, like no sugar anywhere. I could not have a bit of sugar because it took me out so quickly. So it was no sugar. And that was it. That was all I could do for a while. Um, and now it's still no sugar, although now I can have, like, ketchup and I don't, like, throw myself off a bridge. And no binging. So, what it was like. I, you know, I was thinking today about, like, okay, so what was it like? When did all this madness start? And I don't know. I, I'm like, it's sort of like, well, I came out this way. You know, what can I tell you? I've been a compulsive overeater since I had any consciousness of being uh, a person. You know, and I started when I was a kid. You know, and I think that one of the things that really, one of the feelings or memories that comes up for me around eating as a little girl was the disparate and I hear I hear adult kids with alcoholics talk about this a lot I'm also sober I don't have alcoholic parents um, although there's ism in the sort of periphery of my family but it's that same experience of the um, my internal reality and the reality of what I saw going on in my family and then the way it was processed talked about and the way that I felt I was supposed to present myself to the world were so far apart that I had to put something in me to deal with that tension. You know, my I, my parents, I grew up in a really small town, like 3,000 people in Idaho. And my parents both taught in the public schools there. And um, it's a very tight-knit community. And it was all, it was very lovely and a great place to grow up. But... What I knew was that my parents were supposed to be role models and that they told, they talked about other people's parents and how weird they were and like we weren't supposed to be weird and everything was, I was supposed to be good and like all this stuff and then, you know, you go to bed at night and mom and dad are screaming at each other and then in the morning you wake up and everybody sits down for breakfast and it's all not, nobody said anything. And I'd be like, what, you guys were screaming at each other all night. We're not going to talk about it? Like, now I'm supposed to just go to school and, like, have a nice day? Like, how, how, I didn't understand how to process that. And that was really my first sort of um, foray into compulsion was 
dealing with the anxiety that that created in me as a little kid. So the eating started really young, um, probably, I, don't, I mean, I honestly, I think it was always there. But I remember specifically, like, binging when I was probably nine, eight or nine years old. And I have <laughs> this memory I was thinking, spending the night at my friend's house, <laughs> probably like in second grade or something, and the big deal was I was going to go spend the night on Friday night, and her mom was going to make us red snapper. I didn't know what red snapper was, but it sounded really sexy. And like I was really like all week long, I was like, Eve's mom is making us red snapper. I have no idea what that is, but I can't wait to get to Eve's house. And I thought it was going to be, my mom was also completely like, uh, granola before her time like there was no sugar in our house everything was carob this and molasses fat and whole wheat this and it was sucked as a kid and so I was really psyched about this whole red snapper idea and um lo and behold you know it's fish if you guys didn't know that and um like it's not exactly an eight-year-old's idea of like an awesome dinner you know? and it was like, I remember being so devastated that like I really I wanted to go home I started to cry I wanted like I didn't know then like how I was going to manage to have a nice night you know and like I was too embarrassed to actually say like I need to go home because I'm so upset about the red snapper (laughs) so I just like again I you know it was like I held holding on to those feelings and like not having anywhere to take them and not feeling like I had any room to um to have an authentic emotional experience because I know I think I sensed even then that my emotional life was like that it wasn't normal you know and that it wasn't safe to go around telling people the truth about what was going on inside um because they were going to think I was crazy and um and it went on like that you know so the obsession around I always felt fat as a kid too and I maybe was like a little sort of plumpy not even I mean I look at pictures of me now as a kid and I looked like a normal kid like there's nothing there's not it's not I don't see a chubby kid I don't see a fat kid I see a kid but I I don't know it's it I've always felt conscious of being bigger that same friend actually Eve I being, I remember being devastated that I couldn't borrow her jeans in like third grade because she was built like a boy and I was never really built like that even as a little kid and my mom actually who we'll get to her but she she still says things to me like God when I had you and when I had your sister it was hard to get the head out once the head was out she just came out and everything was fine and then with you I got her head out and then come your shoulders and then my God girl your hips I was as an infant you know like already the, the family story is that I'm the you know the curvy one or what, the one with childbearing hips or what, I mean the thing and my grandmother has actually said that to me I'm sorry you got my hips honey she'll say so the you know the crazy obsessive body stuff is a really big part of my my family story as well so in high school she was more in junior high really there was I had kind of a, a period where I you know adolescence kind of kicked in and I was actually had it was having a lot of fun I was pretty popular like junior high was not traumatic for me it was there were lots of boys and parties and it was all good and I don't remember feeling particularly food obsessed <laughs> although I did used to always throw away the lunch that my mom packed for me and steal money from my dad to buy 
lunch at school because it was fattier and tastier and grosser and all that stuff that I really wanted. So it was still going on, but it wasn't making me insane. Um, and my body wasn't really showing signs of, you know, like you wouldn't know from the outside if I was nuts. And then I had um, a traumatic sexual experience when I was 13, 14, I just turned 14, and I couldn't tell anybody. And again, it's that, you know, being as sick as our secrets, I couldn't tell. And I knew it was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so dirty and wrong and awful and, you know, I can't tell them, they'll hate me, I don't know what I thought they would do. I thought that they would know that it was my fault. I knew it was my fault, right? I don't know how why we do that to ourselves or how that idea comes in, but I knew it was my fault. And I couldn't tell my parents and I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't even tell my girlfriends, you know. And so the food was like my best friend again right away. And I gained 50 pounds in like less than a year, maybe like six months I put on 50 pounds. And the family went nuts. It was like they had no, and it wasn't like, wow, kiddo, like what's wrong? Is something going on with you? It was like, why are you gaining weight? And you will exercise every day. And this is not acceptable in our family. And like really, there was a lot of craziness around how things appeared on the outside. And then, and this is where the story diverges a little bit, at around 16, I'd had enough. I'd had enough of being home alone on a Saturday night, eating my face off, thank you, fat as all get out. I'd had enough. And so I started drinking and smoking cigarettes and doing drugs. And it was like nirvana. I didn't have to eat anymore. So alcoholism and drug addiction and nicotine addiction really became my cure for compulsive overeating until I got sober at age 29. So we can just fast forward about 13 years. So now we're getting to the what happened part. The what happened part was I got sober. And I stayed sober long enough that smoking cigarettes no longer worked for me. Now, I could binge a little bit, like enough to take the edge off and eat sugar, enough to take the edge off, and smoking as meant so many cigarettes. I smoked like a pack and a half, two packs a day. Like there was never not a cigarette in my mouth. I could, and I could work out enough, you know, coughing all the way, to keep my body down to a somewhat normal body size. Like I definitely have body dysmorphia. I don't know what size. I mean, I know what size I am because I know what size pants I buy, but I don't know what that means. And I think it means something. I'm pretty sure it means something about me. But I'm never quite sure. Any On any given day, it can mean something different. But what happened really was that I stayed sober long enough to uh, put down the cigarettes. And oh my God, you guys, it was like some devil came in and took over my body and took me to Vaughn's. <laughs> it was bad and I couldn't stop going to Vaughn's like every single night. I was in grad school at UCLA and I would be coming home from rehearsal at like 11.30 midnight, right? Knowing I had to get up at 6.30 or 7 to get back to school the next day, working harder than I ever had at something that I really wanted. And I'd be like driving home, I'm not going to go to Vons, I'm not going to go to Vons, I'm not going to go to Vons, and then I'd go to Vons and binge. And I was seeing my, my body go again. You know, I could, every day I could feel it getting bigger. I was getting bigger, and digestively, it was all screwed up, and and then I couldn't stop doing it in front of other people. That's when it really got scary. 
Like I'd sit down to eat with my classmates or my castmates at a show, and I would not be able to, like I'd get a huge portion at some restaurant, and I would not be able to stop when it was appropriate, and I'd have to finish my whole plate and then your plate and then probably ask the waiter for a side of something. And I could t- people, I could see them looking at me like, Girlfriend, like clearly, you probably ought to lose ten or fifteen anyway, and this is not good. You know, I could, I felt so ashamed, and so I knew where to go. Although, man, I didn't want to come here. I really wanted AA to solve this thing for me. I really did. I was fine being an alcoholic because it's fucking sexy and whatever. Being a compulsive overeater is not sexy. So I went to my first meeting. I went to the one o'clock meeting at Forbes Hall. And I just cried. I just sat in the meeting, and I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. Um, after the meeting, this lovely like woman came up to me, and Sharon, she was my first sponsor, and she said, "Honey, tell me what's going on." And I just I can't stop eating. Blah blah blah. And she said, "Well, what is it? Like, what is the thing that's really getting you?" And I said, "It's sugar. Like, I can't stop eating sugar." And she said, "Okay, cool. Today, no sugar. That's it." You can come to my house. You can sleep there. You can do whatever you need to do. But to, just for today, how about no sugar? And I thought, okay, like something, something's got to give, you know. So I was able to get abstinent off of sugar right away from that day. I actually haven't had recreational sugar on purpose, like gone out and had ice cream or cakes or cookies or since that day. Um, which I forget what a miracle that is because everything else feels so unclear and unclean sometimes that I, 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 I can tell myself like, that I have no recovery and no abstinence. And, um, but from that day on, I didn't have any sugar. And I started to have lots of other stuff. It got big again. You know, like it got all, kind of, all kinds of crazy. But I haven't left OA since. And for me, a big part of my abstinence and what I... Um, What's important to me is that I don't leave. Interestingly, I got to, I I chose a sponsor who was so involved, like really, really good. Um, Beautiful woman. She's still one of my best friends. But she didn't really mind if I didn't work the steps. And she, I kind of, she, I don't know, because I had already worked him in another program. And, you know, it just wasn't, there wasn't a real onus on step work. And um, that was great because I didn't really want to look at much of it anyway. So it worked, it really did work for me. I think I needed that for a while. I needed that really sort of gentle, like sort of anything goes as long as you don't do X, Y, or Z thing for a while. And actually that was maybe, gosh, almost two years like that. And then what happened was that I, recovery wasn't, I wasn't free. I wasn't getting free. And I wanted you know, it was like, it's weird because I think I still, I have such an all or nothing brain and I think the alcoholic in me is so all or nothing. Like, I don't call my sponsor before I drink a beer and then call her after I drink the beer and say, okay, I'm done with my one beer. Like, that's retarded. <laughs> and so sometimes in a way I go, Are you, guys, this is, this is so weird to me. I still don't get it. Like, what do you mean I'm supposed to, like, check in about my meals and, like, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't weigh and measure, so there's room for things to get funky, and what I'm finding is that the, for me in this program, it has absolutely been an inside job, and the recovery that 
shows up in the way that I eat is because I've worked stuff out on the inside. Now, that's not to say that when things aren't funky, I look at what I'm eating and I clean it up so that I can get to what's on the inside. You know, there's a real relationship for me there, but I do not have the kind of abstinence that I tell myself that other people have, and maybe they do, and it's really none of my business, but where I say, no X, Y, Z, period, this, that, the other, no matter what, you know, end of story, I'll go to any length not to eat an extra bite or whatever, you know, it's not my abstinence. What I have found is that the recovery has been spiritual, and it has been a process of accepting myself for who I am start to finish with all of the stuff that that comes with and to not judge myself and my life based on what size my jeans are what I ate yesterday what I'm going to eat later today what size your jeans are and you know am I smaller than her or bigger than you know that really I mean you guys know that that took up like 99% of my mental energy for so long or it was like am I fat or am I skinny am I fat or am I skinny am I fat or am I skinny? like come on like there was no room for anything else and I really have a lot of freedom from that today a lot of freedom from that a surprising amount of freedom from that I don't really think about my body unless something else is going on it's like, it's not, my, it's not my main focus, and I'm not that interested in it. I'm just really not. I, I, think that, I think that a lot of it is about, I was also an actor for many years, and um, that was actually, that's been a big, a big OA journey for me, was part of, I mean, one of the things that sort of drove me here, aside from the, just the desperation of not being able to not eat another pint of ice cream another night in a row, was that um, it was brought to my attention over and over and over that I was too fat to work. And I don't know if anybody else is here in the business. They don't just, they don't say it nicely. They say you're too fat to work. And I would hear this information and I would spin into such suicidal depression. And I was so angry with God because I thought, like, okay, on the one hand, you blessed me with this talent and you gave me this passion and you gave me this drive. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I'm really good at it and I know I'm really good at it. And everybody tells me, you're really good at it, but you're too fat to work. And if you just lose weight, you could ki- you'd be kicking ass out there, girl. And I'd be like, I can't. Like, how do I explain that to you people? I can't. And I was so pissed off. I felt like it was a real, um, and I still struggle with this spiritually. I feel like when I get in a, in a place spiritually that's where I'm feeling unfit or ungrateful, I think that God is, is pulling the old, uh, I like to call it the bait and switch. It's where, like, it's going to be this way, and look how nice it is, and you're going to have this, and it's going to be that, and then, ha, 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 never mind, like, it's all screwed up, you're just fat, he sucks, he doesn't love you anyway, you're not going to get the job, blah, 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 and I get, so I take it so personally, and I get so hurt by it, and I, I go, like, like, that was, like, that was, like, excuse me, God, that was, like, the meanest schoolyard trick, and how dare you behave like that? And then I have to, like, step back from that and go, like, okay, hang on. I know God doesn't behave like that. 
the God that the God of my understanding loves me infinitely, and there's nothing in that equation that spells infinite love. <laughs> so what I'm calling God is really something else, right? It's my expectations. It's my psychology. It's my you know. It's my tendency to be over-emotional. It's my oversensitivity. It's whatever it is, but it's not God. Coming to an understanding, like a surrender to um, the world, like the world as it is. Like, I don't really have it in, like, I'm not really interested in being some trailblazing, like, um, I can make it in Hollywood in the body that I have and look at me and, um, you know, changing things for women. I wish I had that in me. I don't. And I made a decision to give it up, to walk away from that dream, because I could no longer handle it. I couldn't be told one more time, you're too fat. And I really had to ask myself if the cost of what that was costing me on an emotional level, what that was costing me in terms of how I saw the world, like, is the world a loving place um, where, e- where everything and anything is possible? Or is the world something that's going to limit me and make me feel bad about myself? And, like, what am I choosing to participate in? And I really sort of just came to the, to the decision that I was no longer willing to participate in conversations that were that hurtful. And if that meant that I wasn't going to go on auditions, it meant I wasn't going to go on auditions. Like, it was just, it got really clear for me all of a sudden. Now, it's not to say that the process of extricating myself from that dream and from that life wasn't this difficult. It was. It took like a year of sort of heart-wrenching willingness, I guess. But what's been really interesting is on the other side of it, I can't tell you that I do not give a rat's ass. I actually called my, my agent, my commercial agent, who I was still hanging on to, and said, just take me off your roster because I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that work. I don't care. It's like I feel, I feel completely free and, like, open to other possibilities and open to um, a whole other profession that I've discovered that I love, that I'm really good at, that I keep getting, like, raises and accolades and get... You know, like, I'm, I'm having success for the first time in my life on a professional basis. And it's all part of surrendering to the what is. You know, I was so attached to the way that I thought my life had to look. And I couldn't see the forest for the trees. So that's kind of, that kind of takes me up to, like, what is life like today? Life is really great. I have recommitted to OA, to a new sponsor to really getting in there and working the steps, to um, to the best of my ability, not hiding from who I am when I'm standing in front of the refrigerator, which I still am ashamed sometimes of that girl and what goes through her head and how she feels about herself. And what sometimes, you know, the idea of what I will... And I don't do the behavior, you know, so there's the recovery, but... Sometimes it's so overwhelming to think of, like, how powerful the disease is and how willing I am to throw away every shred of self-respect I have for a cookie. You know, it's not it's a really humbling thing. 
I want to tell you guys the story because it just cracks my shit up. But <laughs> so a lot of a lot of their recovery for me too has been about family stuff and about getting to a place where like my new paradigm for my family is that it's my job to be of loving service to every member of my family whenever I possibly can, and that's it. I can give you know if the rest of it is like history. It's done. It's over, and it doesn't matter. My job is to be of loving service to them. My mom and I have had this, you know, from the from the get-go, that feeling of not being able to tell them the truth of who I was, of then taking care of myself in the only way that I knew how, which was with food, and then being punished for the outward um, signs of that self-care, which was also unacceptable. I carried that around as a real, like, F you back to that to my parents for a lot, for a long time, and I'm now to a place where when my mom does her funny things, like she still likes to to check what size jeans I'm wearing. Like when I go home to visit, like I'll walk into the room where I'm staying, and I'll, there she'll be looking at the size on my jeans because she's got to know. She's got to know is my girl is my child okay, or really she has to know am I okay? Is she okay as a mom? And for her, the way she knows that is if I'm in an acceptable body size. So. That's her stuff, right? The disease doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's like, well, where do you think I got it? You know? It just shows up differently for her. So Easter weekend, um, I went home to see my family. And we do this weird thing around food where my my whole family, very fit, very health-conscious, skinny little jerks people. (laughs) And um, But we do this thing, right, around the dinner table where it's like you can't leave food. Right? Like, if it's, like, a couple bites of whatever the dish is, like, God forbid, it just go in the disposal or, like, to, like down the garbage. It's, like, there has to be this whole discussion about, well, you should finish it. No, you finish it. No, I don't want it. No, you should. Oh, you should finish it. Well, could, it's just two bites. You finish it. Right? This goes on and on and on and on. So this is happening at the table with this, I don't know, it's like chicken or something. And my sister says to me, well, Amy, why don't you finish it? And my mom doesn't miss a beat. She goes, well, don't encourage her. (laughs) And I was like, two years ago, three years ago, I would have been so angry about that and so hurt by that, and I would have cried about it secretly or maybe even to her, although I never really took this stuff to her. And it made me laugh. It made me, like, I started laughing so hard. And my sister, caught, she catches on, right? She gets it. So she's laughing so hard. We both, like, have tears streaming down our face. And my mom's like, what? What's so funny? I'm like, really? I mean, don't encourage her? That's funny. So I guess all I really want to say is that I don't understand really how recovery works. My experience has been that it's a process of, like, persistent consistence and re-surrendering all the time and becoming more and more willing to tell the truth um, and to not filter the truth so that I can hang on to my behavior, you know. I'm really good at telling you what I'm doing, but telling you it in a way that you're not really going to tell me to stop doing it, (laughs) even though it's killing me. And kind of being, just being willing to let go of that stuff and to just, um, to give over to the knowledge that there's a power greater than me who has a, who's infinite, who has infinite love and who has a design, not for my life so much, but for my soul. And so all the stuff that manifests in my life is just, 
I always I just think, well, my you know, like my soul is trying to grow me today. That must be what's going on on days that feel uncomfortable or even days that feel joyous. I mean, it's all really just a lesson. This is a real miracle of OA and recovery that I... Oh, shit, I didn't tell you the story you want me to tell. Mm-hmm. Damn it. I totally forgot. Okay, a couple stories. So, <clears throat> this is... Actually, these are great because this is how God has always has worked in... Since I got sober and then abstinent, this is how God has worked for me. When I was... Thank you. When I was... um first getting sober I had about December 15th is my sobriety date and my abstinence date actually I slipped on my AA birthday <clears throat> and then so I guess the next day the 17th is my OA date so it was one, out for one day but when I was but my, that first year of sobriety so I had two weeks sober it's New Year's Eve and I'm a bartender <laughs> in Brooklyn and I was, guys, I was a, um, my addictions are not um, pretty, and they don't come in um, uh, light forms, okay? I was a daily drinker. I drank till I passed out every day for 10 years. And um, there I am, two weeks off of alcohol, and I'm still detoxing, and I have, like, this ache in my spine, like you will not believe. And I know this is AA stuff, but it's God stuff, so I'm, I'm going to feel free to share it. My skin is crawling. My spine hurts. My eyes, like I can't really see. But at the time, I didn't have I didn't have enough recovery to know I didn't really have to go to work, right? I thought I had to go to work, come hell or high water. So I'm going to go bartend on New Year's Eve. So a nobody knows I'm in AA because God forbid, right? And so that I can pretend to you, to myself, to other people that I'm okay, that I can hold it together, whatever it is. I need money, you know. I'll tell myself all these stories. So I remember being in my apartment and just sobbing and getting down on my knees and just asking God, like, just, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I can feel, I'm like, I can feel, I'm already, I'm like, I, the shot is already in my mouth. You know, I'm screwed here. But I'm going to go into this bar and I'm going to work tonight. So please help me. And it was like, I walked in the door of that place at like 7 o'clock at night and I worked until 5 o'clock in the morning and it was like being in some kind of bizarre space bubble. It was like I was untouchable. I was there, and I was doing, it was really busy. I was working. People were getting hammered all around me. This is a bar, but I worked there for five years, and I was known for being like the girl to get down with because I was like out of my mind. And it was like I was in this strange little God-shaped orb you know, and I just like floated through my shift and I walked out of there at five o'clock in the morning just like I can't believe it and I stayed up and went to like a 6.30 in the morning meeting and I knew then that like miracles were possible if that was possible anything was possible um, and the other story I'll tell really quick is that when I um, <clears throat> had then fast forward to I had about this is definitely what it was like. I had about 60 days sober, and um, I kept, I was losing, I was eating a ton, and lots and lots and lots and lots of sugar, but I was losing like three or four pounds a day, 
like literally. And I was like, what is that? If this is what sobriety is like, um, this is rocks. And I was eating and eating and eating, getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, and then my ribs are showing, and people are concerned. And, ooh, all of a sudden, I don't feel so good. And I know you have the stairs and what's going on. And I thought I was crazy. I, don't, I didn't trust my body. I thought, well, I'm just nuts. Um, and I ended up in the emergency room, uh, and they put me right in ICU, and I was diagnosed with uh, late-onset type 1 diabetes as a result of drinking, right, as a result of eating out of control for years, as a result of also my genetics and some weird autoimmune stuff, but all of those things played a part. But the craziness is, is that I was willing to ignore what my body was telling me for like a month as I went from like 150 pounds down to 115. And I thought, this kicks ass. That's what I thought. This is really awesome. My organs were shutting down. And I was so psyched that for the first time in my life, I was a size four. That's all I cared about. So to go from that to where I am today, where I have a real... Not that I don't let myself get uncomfortable before I do something about stuff. I still, like, let's say everything I let go of has claw marks in it to varying degrees. But I don't throw myself away like that. I don't throw myself away for a pair of jeans. I don't throw myself away for a cookie. I don't throw myself away for a guy. I don't throw myself away. To be able to do to do that is... I attribute all of that to OA, to the 12 steps, to my higher power. Okay, I'll, I'd be happy to take questions or whatever. Hi. For your share, what are you doing to really be connected to your higher power? I pray and meditate every day. So for me, it's a morning. I, I need to do it in the morning. I still, not to, I, okay, well, you know, you know the feeling of waking up like the house is on fire, right? It's like, <gasps> I'm awake, something has already gone wrong. <laughs> and anxiety, lots of anxiety. And I never know, am I anxious because I'm depressed or am I depressed because I'm anxious? They're very um, tied for me. I think the anxiety is, for me, the more root thing. So i got to work on my anxiety first thing in the morning. So I do get a cup of coffee first. <laughs> and then... Um, I sit with a, a daily meditation book of some sort, some program literature, either OA or AA. I have a place in my house. Ritual is really important to me. And it has become important in recovery because the idea of getting down on my knees to pray was so powerful and actually changing my physical position and having a physical position that was used only for, right, was really important to me. And um, so I have a place in my house and a little rug that I sit on, and it's really simple. I just read a little literature. I pray. I always, always, always say the third step prayer. It's just my favorite. Um, and then whatever else I need to say, I say to God. We have, I have a really fluid kind of conversation, I guess, with God. I don't I don't adhere to any, like, I can't ask for anything specific. Or, I mean, if I feel like I need to ask something specific, I just ask for it. <laughs> I'm going to get it, right? Like, I'm not in charge here. It's not like if I pray wrong, you know, like, that's going to change the result. It's about um, getting to know myself and being honest with myself and connecting. And, and then I just sit and listen. So, for me, meditation is, a, is when I receive. So, um I consciously ask to be in a, in a receptive state, and I just sit in quiet. And one of the, the coolest meditations that 
I learned um, from a fellow was to just on my inhale to say I love you Amy and on my exhale to say I love you God and it's simple and it's profound and it's powerful and it really centers me um, so I do that for a while until I can just be still and just be quiet and then I just let myself be still and quiet and I can meditate now I have to set a timer because otherwise I'll just sit there so and I couldn't do it for one minute when I first started trying I was too squirrely um, so I 10 or 15 minutes depending on how early I get my butt out of bed every day Right. Um, yeah, I was going to say, how did you um, make the journey from kind of the punishing God, or, or I guess how did you get to a place where you were able to, like, you know, be able to see your God in like a different way? Because I, I, I understand, I'm kind of going back and forth with that. Mm-hmm. My first sponsor, this was in AA, <clears throat> although she's also, she, I wasn't in OA at the time, but she was, <laughs> go figure, asked me to write my a description of God the way that I would write um, a request for, my, for the best boyfriend. Like, if God could be anything that I wanted God to be, with no restrictions, no limitations, no, I don't have to get anybody's permission for God to be like that. I just get to choose what would God look like. And I just sort of created this um, idea, and at the time, it was somebody I could like. I don't mean this in the way it's somebody I could be in my undies with. <laughs> I mean, in the spiritual sense, like my spiritual undies, you know, and just be like hanging out um, and have a really uh, loose and easy conversation with. But the thing that was the most important thing for me about defining my higher power was that I could let go of all the responsibility. I know that sounds weird, but I didn't want to have, I couldn't have any responsibility for my life. Because my best thinking got me, well, first fat, and then drunk, and then fat again. <laughs> like, and crazy, and in the food, and self-destructive, and manic, and, you know, alone, and all of those things. And I, it wasn't like I ever said, oh, screw it, I'm just going to be, uh, uh, I'm just going to mess up my life. I'm just going to be, you know... I, whatever it is that I was, you know, I was really trying to put a life together. And that was the result I was getting. So it was key for me that I needed to be able to give over control. And that I needed to be able to say, okay, if I do, if I get to a meeting today, and I stay sober today, and I stay abstinent today, and I do one or two things to be a service, if at all possible, everything else is God's business. Everything else. Because I don't want to be in charge of my bank account. I don't want to be in charge of my job. I don't want to be in charge of my relationships. Like, I can't do it. And the, the, the thought that I have to do it is so frightening to me that it will send me out. So key for me is that I can be, like, in, really in God's hands. In God's hands. Okay. Thank you.